Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 43, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So today is the last episode in a month-long string of episodes on the supernatural. If you're just listening for the first time, uh, we had four prior to this. One, The first one was on the basics of what is supernatural anyway, and how immersive the supernatural was in the life of Jesus and his followers. It's just an everyday occurrence, the supernatural. And then we spent the next two weeks exploring both the red flags and the dark side of the supernatural, and the positive, life-giving, normal, everyday practice of the supernatural in the life of a follower of Jesus. And then last week, I don't know why we decided to do this, but we took on the entire book of Revelation and explored what is that book really about uh, in all of its crazy imagery, and explored what that kind of impenetrable book is, is really about and how it relates to our, our relationship to the supernatural. So that's the four we did previous to this, and today, by just happy accident, my friend Johnny Baker from London, England, is here. Uh, he's one of the speakers for our Future of the Church Summit that we have here at Group every year, and I haven't seen you, Johnny, in probably, what, 15 years, something like that? He, when I met him, he was head of Youth for Christ in London, he has since moved to a new position that I'll have him tell you about in just a second. But the way that I met Johnny was on a trip to England 15 years ago to try to explore how ministry innovation was happening in a country where the church had sort of been decimated, almost burned to the ground in some ways, and how in the midst of those ashes, people were planting new expressions of church and of ministry. And I met Johnny through a mutual friend, and the first time I met him was at St. Paul's Cathedral, where he had installed a labyrinth in one of the naves in one of the largest cathedrals in the world, where visitors who were and tourists who were just coming to look at the church ran across this labyrinth on the floor that if they decided to do it, they would walk through stations along the way that drew them to the heart of Jesus and then out again. It was an extraordinary public installation of faith and intimacy, and I'd never seen anything like it, and Johnny was on the team that created that. So that started my relationship with him. He has been one of the most creative people I've ever known, especially in this space of how we relate to God and how things that we do as a community of people how that can create an intimate environment through creativity for relating to him. So, so uh, Johnny's here today, and we're going to talk about how the importance of creativity in our relationship with God and how we can grow more creative in our relationship with God and how that relates to the fundamental supernatural basis for how we relate to God. So with all of that, Johnny, maybe you could introduce yourself and tell a little bit about what you do and why you do it. Yeah, thanks, Rick. It's great to be with you. Great to see you again. Yep. Um, I live in London, and uh, the the job I do now really is working with creative, interesting people, uh, kind of mission entrepreneurs or ministry entrepreneurs. I mean, we actually call them pioneers but or pioneer ministers. And I work with them, helping train them um, so that they can realize ideas, possibilities, things that they see, um, usually to connect in some way with people who are outside of the church. So it might be a particular housing area where there's no church to connect with them, or it might be with a group of steampunks or spiritual seekers. And often it's a mix of getting involved in transformation in the local community and um, developing a faith community at the same time out of that. And 
my shorthand for those people I was saying to you earlier, I think of them as having the gift of not fitting in. So, <laughs> you know, if business as usual in the church is in a particular direction, they're often seeing something off left field that's a different possibility so they don't fit in with the normal way of seeing and doing things. And it, it's very much a gift of sight. I think what they build, what they do, comes out of a different seeing I mean, the organisation I work for is the Church Mission Society, which has been around over 200 years and probably is most famous in some ways in that one of its founders was William Wilberforce. Wow. So it kind of came out of that era of the Clapham sect. Uh, one of the things that they ended up doing was setting up the Church Mission Society. And for those that don't immediately uh, locate that name, he was leader of, of the anti-slavery uh, movement in in Britain for many, many years before finally succeeding. Yeah. So as you would expect, the Church Mission Society is very much focused on mission. Historically, it's been sending people to other parts of the world, but it's not news, I think, to say that the most challenging parts of the world in terms of um, mission and Christianity are now the West, I think, rather than Africa, China, Latin America, which in many ways the global South is the heartlands of Christianity. But I think, you know, there's there's a big experience of people that have learned to cross cultures in, in mission to think imaginatively about how the gospel relates to those cultures and contexts. And essentially what we're doing is saying that same imagination is required as we think about how the gospel relates to our own cultures and contexts. I mean, there's a former guy who was the head of uh, CMS back in the 1960s, I think, called John Taylor. And one of his his definitions of mission that might, I was thinking about might fit well with this discussion is he describes mission as an adventure of the imagination. Mm. In other words, you've got to imagine, see, to to connect between God, the Christian tradition, the context that the people are in, and there's not something you can pull off the shelf to tell you how to do that. It's much more somehow in the midst of that space, improvising, going on this adventure of the imagination. And I think certainly with our our mission ministry entrepreneur students, they, they are embarking on this adventure of the imagination. So you mentioned the word improvisation, and I think that's a central word that relates to any relationship. All relationships are improvisational, including our relationship with God. We often don't, we often don't think in those terms, and, and actually those terms scare us a little bit, improvisation in our relationship with God. We'd rather have it be sort of boundaried in a linear process towards something. But what's true is that in all great relationships, there's they're, they're founded on improvisation, and that means necessarily that our creative, our create the creative part of our being is accessed in that. So the Becky Nader is not on the podcast today, but we were just talking to her before we uh, started this interview, and she raised a question about: Isn't it true that that we are you're either intrinsically creative or not? We often hear people say this: "Oh, I'm not very creative," and I always think, "Well, that's just fundamentally not true. It's it can't be true. You're created in the image of God, and He's fundamentally creative." I think what people mean by that is that I'm not very creative, but they don't see themselves as somebody who can improvise or come up with, you know, fantastical things that... So let's talk just for a moment about the nature of creativity. How do you see this? How would you answer Becky's question? Is it innate or can it be learned? Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the books that really got me going on creativity about 25 years ago was a book by an American, actually, Roger Von Erk, called A Whack on the Side of the Head. Yeah. I don't know if you've come across that book, which mm -hmm. talks about mental blocks to creativity. And he says the challenge is really overcoming those mental blocks. But block number one, he says, is I'm not creative. So he, he quotes some research that was done, I think, by a, a big oil company or something into the difference between people that are creative and people are not. The reason being it's easy for companies to find people that will type in data or do routinized tasks, but you know, finding people that can solve problems tends to require a much more creative type of thinking. And they research social background, ethnicity, class, income, et cetera, et cetera, and they found one difference. And the difference was people who are creative think they're creative. <laughs> 
so you know i mean i'm i'm an evangelist for this in a sense that everybody i meet i'm on a mission to say you are creative you need to start believing you're creative i mean i completely agree with you that's part of what it means to image god i mean obviously there are artists who develop particular areas of craft and artistry and skill and that can be developed but fundamentally imagination is part of what it it means to be human and to image God, I think. One interesting thing, too, is uh, I just finished writing about this in this book I just finished, Spiritual Grit, uh, about the forming power of words. We're created in the image of God who formed everything out of words. He spoke into being everything that we know as part of creation, and because we're created in His image, we don't pay enough attention to the power of our words. So when you say, when, when you list this, that uh, people say, I'm not creative, I'm thinking about my 14-year-old daughter, Emma, who has a dodgeball tournament tonight, that it's a one-off. She's just doing it as part of a, a kind of an extracurricular thing. And for weeks, she's been saying, I'm a terrible dodgeball player. I'm a terrible dodgeball player. I'm going to be horrible. I'm going to get hit in the head. I can't throw a ball. It's just a litany of what she's not. And I'm trying, as best I can with a 14-year-old, to say, Emma, it's so important that you stop saying that. <laughs> Even if you think it's true, start saying different things, mm. like, this is going to be fun, or I wonder if I'll be better than I was the last time, or anything but I'm terrible at dodgeball. Because there is a forming influence to our words, especially when we're telling ourselves back our, the story about ourselves. It's very powerful. If you're telling a story about yourself that confines you, you will be confined. So that that's what yeah, I... Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think if people say, I'm not creative enough, they fulfill that prophecy. I mean, another book on creativity I've read recently that's been around a while, but I absolutely love, is called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And one of the things he does in there is he, he goes into schools and runs workshops but he contrasts primary school so i don't know what your words are for this uh, teaching, elementary school yeah, elementary school so sort of seven to eleven year olds he mm -hmm. goes in and does stuff on creativity and asks the class who here thinks they're an artist and everybody's hand goes up and then he does the same thing in a high school so you know five years later or something and maybe one courageous person puts their hand up and there, there's something about the self-belief around imagination and creativity. I mean, you know, in the book he then describes what he does with them and asks them the same question at the end, but I think he's on a mission to encourage people, no, you, you are an artist, you're creative. Um, and you have to be. This isn't just a kind of a, an expression of opinion that we're talking about right now. It has to be true that if we are created in the image of God, we have to be creative. There is no other answer for this. So if you accept that, then the problem that we're dealing with, the tension we're dealing with, is really the, the narrative we tell ourselves, and, and whether we have the courage and confidence to experiment in this. It comes back to not about an innate ability. It really, what this, what this spotlights or surfaces is, Will I have the courage and confidence and determination to explore my creativity, not whether I have it or not? That's really the issue. So, and how this, to me, connects into this whole conversation about the supernatural is we don't often think this way, but if we are intending to relate to a person who we cannot see or taste or touch or hear, audibly hear, most of us have not heard the audible voice of God, that presents difficulties. That's odd. We have natural relationships where we can do all of those things. Because we can't do those things, that automatically makes this relationship a supernatural one, which means that the ways that we relate to him are going to be fundamentally supernatural, requiring faith, uh, trusting the things we can't see instead of the things we can see. And I don't think we slow down and pay attention to how to create that kind of rich, intimate relationship. So in the car on the way up here, you mentioned another book that you've read that just kind of gripped me when you described it. It's called The Creative Stance. It's an art book. I thought it was interesting. You said uh, you find yourself going into art book uh, shops instead of theological book shops. What, tell me again, why is that a pattern in your life? Well, I mean, I, I do read books on mission and theology as well, but uh, what I've found of late is that 
or one of the things that struck me is that when I go into something like the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, they have a bookstore there I really love, or the Tate Modern, which is a big gallery in London. They have books, as you would expect, on photography, architecture, design theory, um, and with monographs of different artists and so on, all of which are good. But they always have books on how to change the world to do with the economy, ecology, inclusion. There are always things on, you know, sexuality, race, identity, politics sort of thing. And I always find when I go into those shops, I can't resist buying some of those books on how to rethink about the world that we're in. And it kind of got me wondering, why don't theology books stock those kinds of books? You know, it seems that those are the questions we should be discussing in relation to faith. But anyway, yeah, the last time I visited the Institute for Contemporary Arts, the book I picked up was called The Creative Stance. And what that book is, it's uh, it's sort of a, a come out of a series of discussions amongst um, some of the lecturers that teach at the best art colleges in, in London. And together they, they've been having a kind of discussion on what makes for a really flourishing creative person who can thrive in the art world or in any world, I guess. And what they came up with was a series of seven behaviours, seven words, and, and the, the book's organised into seven chapters which begin with an essay by an artist, quite a short essay, and then a discussion between three, usually three, lecturers around that particular um, theme. Mm. And the, the thing that this immediately made me think of, and what we're going to do for the rest of the podcast is we're going to kind of shortly camp on each of these seven things as an exploration of how we as people created in the image of God can grow into this kind of improvisational creativity so that it in turn fuels our ability to be intimate with Him, but also on the other side of this to explore what the source of all these things is, because if God is is fundamentally a creator, it means he's fundamentally an artist. And we often frame the Bible and church and sermons and all of these things kind of centrally in our head, as opposed to the heart where the, where the artist lives. You mentioned something, before we get uh, running into these seven things, you mentioned something uh, in one of these essays that just really struck me about one of these people t- talking about these two dichotomies at the heart of every artist— are the Hobbit and the punk? Mm. Can you explain what that is a little bit? Yeah, sure. That's a, that's an artist called Grayson Perry who writes the intro to the, the one of the behaviors, which is rigor. Mm. And in in that essay, he describes himself as having two two inner characters. Yeah, the Hobbit and punk. And his particular form of art, he often works with ceramics and pottery. And he says an artist needs a Hobbit character, and the Hobbit character is the per- is the character who, you know, puts hours and hours of work in to develop the skills of artistry. In his case, related to pottery, so learning how to make a fantastic pot, learning how to do glazes, and and doing the time to develop those skills so that you are a brilliant potter and ceramicist, and giving you kind of a foundational set of skills that may be like a, a very uh, accomplished pianist yeah. would know the notes and the music so well that it allows them to improvise because they've, they have Yeah, I mean, basis. it's similar to Malcolm Gladwell's book on genius that says people put in, need to put in their 10,000 hours or, or whatever. But then he says the thing about The Hobbit is they can be a bit boring <laughs> in, in terms of artists. You know, so what? You can make a great pot. So he says his other internal character is punk, and what, what the punk does is mess with things um, creatively, imaginatively, sometimes perhaps destroying them. Um, reworking them and so on. And it, the, the, in terms of his thinking about artistry, there's a relationship between these two characters, uh, and both are important. If you just have the punk, you you probably haven't got the richness or the depth to, to your work to draw on. But if you just got the Hobbit, you might just be a bit dull. <laughs> and you gave another illustration of what this would look like I think in the theological realm, I'm trying to remember how you. Well, I mean, the the thing that got me interested in this book is is in in the world I live in. The students I'm training, I'm really trying to train them to be imaginative and creative because I think in the, in a sense of 
trying to share Christ in different cultures and contexts is no good doing what we've always done in the same old way. It's not a routinized task. It's an imaginative task. So I was very drawn to this book because I thought, well, this is kind of what I'm trying to do. But the thing that is striking for me at least is that in a lot of theological seminaries it feels like people are afraid of that they much they feel much safer with producing someone that does what we've always known so that they're much better at nurturing the hobbit and would like to silence the punk or not even admit that that is necessary in in the space of ministry which you know, I, I think is odd, but um, particularly in this time of change and so on. But, you know, when, when it comes to creativity and imagination, I think there has to be a freedom of possibility, of ideas, of reworking the tradition of, you know, one of the things, one of the stories of Jesus I really like is where he says the kingdom of God is like someone who brings something old and something new out of the cupboard, that kind of remixing of the tradition with the stuff of life and culture that's around today. But I think the church can be quite fearful around that and quite defended, whether defended around a particular orthodoxy or theology or defended about a particular right way of doing church. There's always a right something to do. And I think that mitigates against creativity because there's always an anxiety or a fear, I'm going to get it wrong, you know. Yeah, totally. So you you launched uh, off with this example that I asked you about from the, the word rigor. Let's start with there. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought about as you were talking about this, uh, I wonder what you think about this. So Jesus, in his in his selection of really the first two leaders of the church, I think represent the two characters, the hobbit and the punk. You have the punk in Peter, who always acts first. He doesn't. He's not formally trained. He's not formally educated. He's a man of creative action. He's always the first. He's always doing the risky thing. People have wrongly framed him as an oaf, as a guy who's always stepping on his own tongue and things like this, and I think it's a totally wrong interpretation of Peter. He's an artist. He's somebody who launches himself into risk time after time. He says the thing no one else will say. He does the thing no one else will do. He, he takes risks. To me, he's like the punk part of that. And then Jesus decides to knock Paul off his donkey— on the way to Damascus, post-resurrection, with an audible voice, and blinds him, scares the heck out of him. You know, think about it from Paul's perspective, Saul's perspective. He might be blind for life now, as far as he knows. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just been knocked off his donkey. And I wrote about this in my book, Shrewd, that if you think about things from, from God's perspective, he needs somebody who's like the Hobbit, somebody who knows the fundamentals so well that he can write the Book of Romans, which is a masterpiece of thinking about the gospel. Paul had the fundamentals nailed. I mean, he had all of the piano keys and notes nailed, and therefore he could play with them. But he, he was perhaps either one of or the smartest people on the face of the earth at the time. He was, he was trained by the greatest rabbi of his time. He, he was leader of the anti-Christian movement because he was so forceful in his leadership. He was smart. And here Jesus knocks him off his donkey because he needs a guy like that. He just happens to hate him right now, so he's got to deal with that first. But once stop, Paul stopped hating Jesus, all of his essence was then hitched to this wagon. And then you have Paul and Peter operating in these two ways that you just described which are need each other. They both need each other, even though they don't always mix well. Mm. Yeah, I like it. Nice idea. Yeah, good. So how would you describe what rigor is in your own well, sense? Um, I mean, I, I think um, in terms of ministry, I think it's true in many areas of life, you, it's hard to just rock up and be creative and do something worthwhile. If you haven't got discipline would be another word to put the time in to learn the tradition or the set of skills that's associated with that with that area. So again, in in terms of the guys that I train, part of rigor is having the the discipline to learn some theology and the tradition and what other people have done by way of mission and ministry 
and, and to study as well as liking the punk stuff. You know, the temptation for them, I think, is just to want to do the creative, out-of-the-box things, etc. But but it, I, I like this sense that to flourish in creativity, you still need rigour. So Grayson Perry says that he gets asked by people what, because he does a bit of teaching for art students, what's the one piece of advice you would give to art students? And you've got to remember, this is an artist who's known for kind of provocative work, brilliant work or whatever. So you're thinking, oh, what's he going to say? And his answer is, be nice, work hard and show up on time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the fundamentals. Yeah, yeah. yeah You've you got to get those things in place to, to be able to then do the other stuff, I think, yeah. What's interesting is that I'm coming out of this, you know, two-year-long immersion in the research around grit and resilience and and having just finished writing this book. And one of the things that's just so overshadowing in all this research is that you must have a passion for something higher than yourself if you're going to be resilient, if you're going to be disciplined, if you're going to have rigor. I love what David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, commented on about this passion for something higher. He basically said, I don't know about you, but I'm terrible at disciplining myself in things I don't care about. It's just so obvious. If you don't have a deep care about it, your discipline then is all located in your own muscle tissue, which we know from our own experience quickly runs out. We are essentially weak when it compares to the challenges in front of us and the discipline we need. We need more than what we've got. So what David Brooks is saying, what the grit research is saying is, where we get that from is a passion for something higher than ourselves. So the way I would frame rigor is as or discipline is it's absolutely necessary, but it's the fruit of something first. So for me, I have had tremendous rigor in my exploration of Jesus in the last 10 years, but it has not emanated from a discipline, a decided discipline. It's emanated from a growing passion that has then magnetically pulled me into rigor and discipline about it. And I think it's important to get first things first, because that's actually how Jesus went about bringing people to a place of rigor. He first infected them with his heart, and I, I just love that place where, you know, he in John 6, where he tells the crowds, you have to eat and drink me if you want any part of me, and they all leave except for his disciples, who are they probably would leave too if they knew, if they could do it in a non-embarrassing way. And Peter, and so he asked them, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? That That is an expression of rigor to me, hmm. because Peter's saying, I'm connected to you. I, I can't do anything about it anymore. <laughs> where else am I going to go? And that then produces the foundation for his discipline, that he stays connected to Jesus because he's been first connected to his heart, not he doesn't have this huge understanding of even what Jesus just said. He's as confused as anyone else. But the 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 passion is what keeps you connected long enough to to have rigor emerge yep. in your life, I think. So what what's another one of these words that risk. Now oh, that's interesting. So yeah, being prepared to take risk and I I mean I again I think this is really interesting when you think about it in relation to the church and the kind of things that we were talking about before because a lot of churches are risk averse or they want they're happy with risk but only within certain parameters. So you know, when it comes to change there there are various writers at the moment that are talking about the difference between a kind of technical change or an ad an adaptive change maybe where you know what the risk that we take might be well let's um move the worship slot on a sunday morning somewhere else or you know so you're kind of tweaking what exists and you're saying that's not really a risk or you're saying it's such a low level of risk it's well, not it, it, it might it might be a small risk yeah but i i think the kind of change that's interesting or risk is well what would happen if we took the risk of imagining that church might you know, Sunday morning might not be the important question. What is church about? What would imagine? Well, how could we imagine it? And what would it look like in the midst of this community of steampunks? Um, and actually, a worship slot would probably be the last thing that they want anyway. Or even if it was, what would it look like? And when would you do it? And that that's much more about innovation, I think, rather than um, a sort of adaptive or technical change. And but the church can be very risk averse. So I, I, I was drawn to this sense that for this creative stance and posture, 
that that's certainly what we want for pioneers. They need to take risks of crossing a boundary to be in and amongst a community of people to share Christ with them. They need to take risks of letting go of the certainties that they've known, perhaps um, uh, to discover where Christ is present in this new community and think how to make connections with Christ in that space and so on. So, I mean, can I, shall I give a biblical example this yeah. time? You know, thinking about Jesus and risk. You know, I, I think if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria, which is a well-known story, the bit of the story that people often don't seem to notice is what happens at the end, which is that Jesus stays there for two days. So what what you've got going on here is somebody encounters Christ, there's a transformation in their life. They go to their community and they want to share this story and they're so excited about Jesus that they say, can you come and hang out? We want to know more. The risk that Jesus takes is what he doesn't do, which is to say, okay, guys, let me take you to the church in Jerusalem because they've got the theology all worked out and, you know, they could disciple you and show you how it works and you could become good followers of God. What he does is take the risk of staying in their culture, which, and you have to remember the Samaritans were viewed as a different religion or at least a heretical religion, and shares God with them inside their culture. And what emerges, presumably, is a Samaritan way of following Christ. Mm. Now, to, to me, that's the kind of risk that we should be taking in mission in the communities that we're among. But that that's highly dangerous to uh, if you if you you know have these sort of defended areas of orthodoxy and practice and ways of doing things and particularly if you you've already demonized the Samaritans or in our case maybe we've demonized pagans or whoever else it might be in our culture I love that you just <laughs> use the word dangerous I think one one kind of awakening that we can embrace as people is that to follow Jesus is by definition dangerous there is no other way to follow him. He is, he's a dangerous person. We, we know this from literally every interaction he has with anybody, either an enemy or a friend. He's a danger. Uh, I love how Peter, Peter Kreeft describes Jesus as a shocking wonder, and he makes a case that no matter what else you think about Jesus, the common reaction to him, no matter who you were, was shock. He's dangerous, and if, if we think that following closely with him will not feel like danger sometimes, we're mistaken. He, he is a consummate risk-taker. He risks in every inter interaction that he has. And I think I, I'm going back, though, to um, what Becky said originally about creativity. I think some people might think—so, so for instance, as long as I've known you, you've been a creative risk-taker. So people could say, well, well, Johnny Baker's just wired that way. He, he's wired to take risks, and I'm not that way. I'm more conservative. I'm more... So is, is risk something that we grow into, or we're just intrinsically, we have our measure of it, and that's what we got? I think it's, it's not like we need to be taking risks all the time, and, and the risks need to be thought about in relation to, uh, to other things. So, but, And I do think in terms of this creativity and artistry and risk-taking, there are some people, the way I think about it in relation to the guys that we train, some people say, aren't all ministers pioneering? And I say, well, have you looked at the church? Clearly they're not. But, you know, even taking it, taking it positively, you could say, well, yeah, I get your point. We certainly want them to be all pioneering. But actually there are some people, if you like, who their front foot is pioneering so that's the way that they're kind of wired mm. and I you know I'm wired that way so I think that way you're you're wired that way in terms of imagination and creativity and I think that's a gift and that's part of who we are that's not everybody's gift so so that's fine but I think you know within a a community you need a mix of gifts and perhaps this creative stance thing you could think about for a community as well as a, an individual that we need to be able to to discern and take some risks together even though you, you want some people that are not taking risks in the roles that they're doing that's fine you know perhaps it's a mix and and i think one thing jesus won't do is violate the identity he's he's created in us so he's created us different so that we can have different expressions within the body. So he's not saying that your level of risk 
is the standard that I must adhere to. But there is there is something I, I think about my own story. I come from a family of non-creative people. I, I stick out like a sore thumb in my family, but I didn't always. Growing up, I was a lot like my my family. So I have to think through what what has happened in me. How did I get to this place? And honestly, it's maybe going to sound cliched, but there's a reality about being as what Jesus called born again. You're born of the flesh and you're born of the spirit. I've taken that seriously, I think, in my life in the sense that I've, I've had another birth, a spiritual birth that allows me to grow into a, a person that is different from my, if you want to call it my flesh lineage. So I think that's in part why I'm different from the other people in my family. I've, as I've grown deeper in my relationship with Jesus, the the spiritual rebirth in me has allowed me to become more creative, more risk taking, more imaginative, more provoking, more more all of these things that aren't natural to me, mm. but they've grown. That's great. They've that's grown great. up in me, and I I think hopeful. this this is possible for us. Uh, it, again, and I think part of it is. By our language, what are we boundarying ourselves by? And if we embrace the thought that we're born again and say, well, what could be the possibilities if that's true? What could I become that I never saw myself as? I think that's important to to remember that. Well, I mean, I, I hope that's true for other people. I mean, one of the ways I think about creativity related to that is that it's environmental or it's in the air and there's something about people being around other creative people that it rubs off on on people so you know and i think that's true of families as well i think i hope our family has kind of creativity in the air so both of our sons are involved in their own way in creative pursuits one a designer one a spoken word artist but i think somehow they breathed in an air of creativity and actually because they were part of a what in the UK was alternative worship. You know, they were bumping into ideas about God and faith that were creative and imaginative. And I think that was just the, was like a habit that they, or an air that they breathed. You um, sort of normalized creativity as yeah. an everyday thing. It's not a special, incredible thing. Since you've uh, been here in Colorado, and we were having dinner together last night as, as a family, and over and over again I kept mentioning that your your, your son Harry won the world competition of spoken word artists. He, he, he won the world championship in spoken word artists. And it was almost like you're like, uh, yeah, he did. Uh, he, he did, but you know, what is that really? And when you've normalized creativity so much that when your son wins the world championship of spoken word, I know that you feel like it was a great honor for him, but it's not like this extraordinary thing that he's expressed his creativity in this way. It's part of the natural outflow of the environment that he was in. Yeah, I mean, we're super proud and think he's amazing. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I mean, it's also an English thing to just be embarrassed about <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, so there we go. But don't, yeah. don't read too much into it, but Rick. But do, do, yeah. do look him up. on. He's got a TED Talk. So Harry Baker on there, you'll find the three poems of his on there. Yeah, he, he he's great. I mean, you've touched on... In your conversation, interesting enough, three other words that are in this this oh good let's seven. So let's we, hear we, them. We've looked at two, but you you mentioned provoca- provoking or provocation. Yeah, that was one. Resilience was another, and imagination. So you, you've good. touched on three different Could, ones. You know, I know that uh, provocation has been a big word for you uh, along the way as you've tried to plant a more imaginative way of of approaching what church is. So, can you talk about what you think a provocation is? Yeah, I mean, talking to you makes me realize I think about creativity quite a lot because that idea came from another book I read on creativity, which was in a book called How to Teach Your uh, Child to Think by Edward de Bono. And in there, he talks about you can have some practices that almost force you to think creatively. And he calls one of those provocations. And and the way he talks about it is that he says that all of us have routines. So, for example, the way one of the illustrations he gives is that when you drive to work, you go the same way every day. One day, there's a roadblock, and what you do is you turn off and find a different path to where you're going. And actually, it shaves five minutes off your journey. So you've come up with a new solution and in the future you drive that way. Now, the only reason you discovered that was because there was a provocation 
which was put in your way. Um, so what he says is that if you want to come up with ideas, clearly one way to do it is provocation. So deliberately find provocations. Now, provocations can be things that are thrown your way, like you're made redundant or um, your car breaks down. Or, or you find out you have cancer. Yeah, you find out you have cancer. Not all provocations are good, but actually... Um, we talked. I talked about this perhaps overly obsessively when I read about it. So my my son Harry, I remember we were driving at one time, broke down. And he said, "Oh, great, a provocation!" And that was the last <laughs> thing I was feeling. But but I think I think learning to receive and see things that come towards you as that there can be a gift in them that provokes you in a different way or an interesting way. Um, and I think in this book, The Creative Stance, provocation is talking about, you know, artists learn to like that, to provoke other people. And certainly I think Jesus was provocative. I oh, mean, my you gosh. Know, you know, you think of even something that we take for granted, like the story of the Good Samaritan or something. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite stories about Jesus is the central orbital center of this is provocation. It's when he's invited by a religious leader who's intrigued by him to come to dinner which is a tremendous honor, his small group, small dinner party of other religious leaders, Jesus walks into the man's home after being graciously invited, does not ceremoniously ceremonially wash his hands. The leader graciously, politely points out to him, hey, Jesus, you forgot to do that, and Jesus launches into this diatribe about the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup, and all you care about is the outside when it's when the inside is what matters, he just launches into this guy, and all of them in the room. His host sort of leans over and whispers, hey, Jesus, when you talk about these things, you're offending us. Did you know that? And Jesus essentially says, yeah, I did, and I, I have more to say. <laughs> and he just keeps going. <laughs> and if I plant myself in that room, would I ever do that? It doesn't sound very English. It doesn't sound very anything, unless you're a unless you're a uh, you know you're a bully or you're a psychopath or you you would never behave this way. But Jesus is behaving this way out of the goodness of his heart to try to provoke something mm -hmm. in that room. He's risking to provoke because he he's interested in growth, and things that are not growing are dead. <laughs> so I think it's one of the most misunderstood things about Jesus's relationship to the religious leaders, that he's just going off on them all the time because he's losing his temper. But he never does anything that is not out of love. We know this, so if you accept that, oh, he's loving these people in this room when he's provoking them in this way, why? What are the mechanics of that? How, how can I understand this as love? I think that's a crucial way to understand his heart, because he understands in that moment the most loving thing he can do is offend everyone in the room and put a big rock in their road to provoke them to respond. I think it's an incredibly loving thing to do, we just don't experience it that way. So we have uh, two words left that we haven't mentioned yet. Let's choose one of them, and we'll, we'll take that, and that'll be our last one today. Okay, um, yeah, the two words are agency and ambiguity, so yeah, take your hmm. pick. Agency. Why don't we talk about ambiguity, but why don't you define agency? Well, I, th I think the kind of thing they mean by agency is being able to take responsibility. I think it relates, I was thinking it relates to passion, that the people have a sense of call and agency is very much living out of the gift of who you are and who you're called to be and taking responsibility for that not expecting someone else to kind of fix that and do that for you but but you, there's a sense of agency and certainly for the you know the pioneer guys training with us they need that sense of agency because often they're doing things that nobody else is necessarily thinking they should do. They're off the the beaten track. So I, th I think that's what that's what agency. And so, is. and part of that is is becoming slowly more and more comfortable with investing and giving energy to who you are, no matter what the response to who you are is. I, I think of that in terms of pioneers. Yeah, yeah. They somehow have to not have blinders on, but have a conviction about what it is they've been called to do. And no matter what the quote-unquote results are from what they have to do, they must maintain their focus on what they've been called to do. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've come to 
learn and appreciate that a pioneer isn't a program or a particular things. It's a metaphor that can be opened up in a number of ways. But their their life's work is to become more fully the person that they yes. are called and made to be. So your life's work is to become more fully Rick Lawrence. Yeah. My life's work is to become more fully Johnny Baker. The problem a lot of us have is we're forever trying to be someone, someone else or someone that we're not. Yeah, I love that. So let's close off by talking about ambiguity. And, and what does that word mean to you in the context of the work that you do with uh, training people to be sort of ministry entrepreneurs? Well, I mean, I, I was thinking about this in relation to Jesus, his whole storytelling and parables. I mean, he seemed to deal in ambiguity the whole time. And I think it's very different to certainly an evangelical way of conceiving of faith as very certain and fixed around creedal statements and propositions. It feels like we don't want any room for ambiguity very often in terms of our, our, our faith. Whereas, uh, yeah, the more I've thought about this, I thought, gosh, there's a whole lot of ambiguity around the way. I mean, Jesus seems to deliberately veil what he's trying to say to, to, I don't know if he's trying to confuse people. I think he's trying to provoke questions very often and stimulate things. So yeah, amb ambiguity, I think, I mean, the way I, I think about that for people in mission is that you need to be able to let go of your fixed ways of doing things and your, perhaps your fixed theologies. I mean, so in terms of mission in other cultures, Clearly one of the problems has been that our imagination of categories and language and how we talk about God and so on is basically very Western. So an ambiguity is thinking, okay, well, I know the, um, the way I conceive of things. I can't do that outside of language, but I just kind of need to live with the, the uncertainty of that and try and listen and hear what are the ways of talking and thinking and being in this culture and encourage people on the inside to explore those ideas and metaphors and theology and see what emerges. So there's a kind of living with uncertainty. And with our students, we sometimes talk about theological homelessness. You know, there's a sense in which you need to leave home in order to find a new home uh, and a way of talking and speaking and conceiving and constructing church and whatever else it, it, with the community you're among that might look quite different, but it, it's quite difficult to do if you're not prepared to let go of what you know because otherwise you might as well just invite people to come and join where you are already. The challenge is to go w on a journey with them to somewhere neither of you have been before. Hmm. It's interesting how these last two things that we've just talked about are connected to each other, the, the provocation and the ambiguity. So sometimes the provocation's intention is to plunge us into ambiguity. So your car breaks down on the road, and now what do you do? What I was going to do, what I was on my way to doing, now I can't do. What do we do now? Uh, my daughter Lucy served at Camp Barnabas uh, every summer for the last four summers, and it's a camp for special needs adults and kids. And Every day is full of ambiguity for her. I mean, I, I was driving with her nine hours back from Camp Barnabas this summer just so she could tell me her stories, and every story was a story of ambiguity, and what do I do now? And there's no template, there's no manual. Yes, we have training, but I'm in the moment right now. What do I do now? It's all full of ambiguity, and it, what it does is it naturally creates a dependency on us. It's, it's the way that I think that Jesus graciously offers us an, an embedded way that we are hungering for him, longing for dependence in him in the midst of our ambiguity. It's a way of sealing our intimacy with him, because when we're in ambiguous situations, that's when we reach outside of ourselves and try to find help from outside of ourselves, which is the very thing he would like to to engender in us, so yeah, yeah, I think I think it, it requires a letting go of control, which is key. I think God's always trying to help us let go of control, and and He does it. I love the way you described the, earlier about the provocation of your car breaking down and your son saying, "Hey, it's a provocation," and that's not how you experience it in the moment. We hate the provoc many of our provocations. We hate them in the moment. If you've been diagnosed with cancer, you hate that fact, but it's the fact that you can't get around it that plunges you into ambiguity, and therefore dependence, and therefore life. It, it, it attaches us in a deeper way to Jesus, and I think in the end, we were, you and I were talking about this last night, what is the Church really all about? And for me, what the Gospel is all about is a restoration of intimate trust. 
between God and the and those he's created, and that is a big job. <laughs> when you're as broken as we are and as distrustful as we are, we are fundamentally distrustful people. It doesn't take much if if Jenny, your your wife had a string of a week of every day doing something that would betrayed you. How quickly would your trust diminish in your relationship? It would be fast. We're, we have precarious trust because we're such broken people, and he's trying to restore intimate trust, where we would literally lay down our life for him in this context. It, it, it takes a lot, and I, for me, I, I just see the way that he has dealt with me is to slowly, purposefully use all of these seven things in my life to, to rebuild trust, so that I just wrote, one of the last things I wrote in Spiritual Grit is that we have an opportunity that Adam and Eve never had. They never had any reason to distrust God in their relationship. We have tons of reasons to distrust Him. We have today, whatever happened today is good enough <laughs> for me to distrust Him, and yet to, to be a person who intrinsically does trust Him is a remarkable level of relationship that not even Adam and Eve, I don't think, could have experienced because they had no reason to distrust him in the first place. So I love that list of seven things. We'll, By the way, gang, we'll put a, a, a link to the, the book that Johnny found and is talking about. It's on... a bit obscure. Yeah. But there's this thing called Google. <laughs> you can find almost anything on this thing called Google. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not even an easy... It's an odd read. It's a discussion between people that teach at art colleges. But I mean, <laughs> There I, you go. I, I liked it. You just but, need to yeah. go to London and go to the... Yeah. Where did you find this again? The Institute for There you go. Just, just take a field trip. But we'll put a... We'll, we'll see if we can find a link, and if we can, we will. It's called The Creative Stance. And uh, uh, Johnny, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Really uh, loved reconnecting with you again. And we're, again, if, if uh, it's a little too late for you now to attend the Future of the Church Summit, because it's past by the time you re- you're listening to this, but if you have an interest in exploring what the, what the Church can be and creatively, innovatively will be, it's a yearly gathering we have here in our headquarters. It's fantastic conversation with very interesting guests. So we'll put a link to Future of the Church Summit on this podcast as well. So, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information about everything we've talked about today on the JesusCenteredLife.com site. You just find our podcast section, you're looking for Season 2, Episode 43. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 